people, not organizations as amorphous entity are innovative and that innovation is as much a process as it is an outcome. It's, it's a habit, right? You know, we brought up Google earlier. People do see these big flashy product launches and assume that like that's what it means to be innovative. But the goal really is to get folks to see how a simple habit repeated over time can lead to newness and that sort of minivation is as much a manifestation of innovation as the chat GPTs of the world. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Okay, TDW fans, we have a super exciting guest today, Tucker Bryant. Tucker is an award-winning poet and Stanford grad who left a role in product marketing at Google to help businesses grow through his work. Tucker challenges organizations to tap into poetic concepts as a means of bringing about transformations in leadership and innovation. His stories, which have garnered millions of views online, have been featured at TEDx, the Prince's Trust in the UK, and dozens of other organizations across the globe. And he has the privilege of sharing the stage, graced by Mark Cuban, Bill Belichick, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Irvin Magic Johnson, as well as founders and executives from scores of Fortune 500 companies. So let's dive in. Tucker, thank you and welcome. And we're so happy to have you here on the show today. I'm pumped. Thank y'all both for having me. I'm excited to get to talk to you both. So as you know, we have done a little bit of our homework on you and know a bit about your origin story. So from age four to 18, you're growing up in the UK and by all accords, you're crushing life. Everything looks really good on the surface. You're tackling all the things that, you know, life has, has said, these are the things that you should excel and be good at. You're getting great grades and you get into Stanford and you're getting ready to leave England and move to San Francisco. And you have this feeling of, you know, life looks good on paper, but I don't quite feel prepared. I don't quite feel like I'm fully formed as a, as a young man ready to head into college and having a little bit of an identity crisis. And then you get inspired by your older sister who is an artist and that helps you step into this new way of being and step into your creativity. But I would love to know more specifically about that because we talk so much about identity and the future of work. And I'd love to hear about this mindset shift and where this journey took you and how it helped you feel like a more complete person in those important years. Yeah, totally. It's a really thoughtful question. Yeah, I think you you got it really right on the the sort of the part of the journey that led up to the poetry. At, you know, in, in high school and before that, I was kind of like a cookie cutter kid. You know, just trying to take the boxes and and in essence, kind of follow a script that I thought would lead to some version of success that almost like would allow me to stop participating in the construction of my own life. Like I felt like once I got to a certain plateau, I'd be able to just chill for, for whatever, 60 years, whatever it was going to be. Sit on the mountaintop somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
because of course all 16 year olds feel like they're going to be able to do that. It's ridiculous. But yeah, you know, it was funny, both on the flight over to California, when I had this realization that like, this was going to be more difficult than I think I thought. But then also actually getting to college and realizing that in a world that's that complex, infinitely more complex than high school as far as, um, you know, what the, the right thing is to do. And of course, nowhere near as complex as life gets post-college, it, it became clear that, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a script. And if anyone was going to write the next chapter of, of, of what I was trying to do with my life, it was going to be me. Didn't want to deal with any of that. Um, and so even after first having this revelation that like, there's probably something else here, I kind of dug my feet in, dug my heels into to the, uh, the opportunity to not really step out of my comfort zones and you know, wasn't doing great in school, was developing like substance abuse issues, wasn't nurturing any passions really. But it was a couple of opportunities of, of, of finding my way back to poetry when seeing what artistry and art and creativity had done for Kenzie. Uh, that kind of started to shift that. Kenzie is someone who is immensely talented, immensely intelligent, but didn't end up going to college because she was more interested in doing what was right for her than what the expected value of rightness would have been for the average person. Um, and so, you know, after diving into a little bit of free writing opportunities and, and sitting with my thoughts, it became very quickly apparent to me that poetry necessitated this sort of thinking that involved taking risks and challenging comfort zones. And I think that kind of seeped into not only the way that I, you know, you know, viewed my art, which was just then starting to develop, but also the way that I would think about how I wanted to build the life that I was living. And I'm still very much on that journey. But I think um, though that first sort of year in college was when that shift started to take place of, we're not just going to sit back and, and hope that things work out. We're going to look for opportunities to change the path that we're on, get out of our river of thinking and, and see where that leads us. So poetry was a, a vehicle for you to spend more time in reflection and discovery for yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah. More time in reflection and discovery and also a sort of on a meta level, an opportunity to view parts of my life that weren't directly related to poetry as, as, things that could be similarly messed with. And, and if that makes sense, yeah, just challenges a different way of, of thinking about things that I think I wanted to try to incorporate in, into the way I pursued work and academics and things like that as well. It's such a cool bridge that you built there. And then yet you're talking about the social pressures we feel as young people, even as grown adults with families and kids that we feel about how we're supposed to take the right path. Well, you know, you should do this. Obviously, you're set up well for this. A lot of people would be really excited to have what you have before you. You know, why aren't you taking advantage of this great opportunity? And I wonder at Stanford, because you're, you're embracing poetry. And at Stanford, a lot of people are, you know, starting unicorn <laughs> startups. And there's this kind of narrative about becoming this super mega awesome person who's doing these world changing things. And then you say, hang on, I'm, I'm exploring creativity and poetry as a way to unlock the best version of myself. Did anybody question you about that or just say, hey, what are you doing right now? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, Stanford in particular, it's known for it's what they call the fuzzy techie divide. You know, all the folks who are NCS or related fields and then the humanities folks. And I'll be totally straight up, that made me fairly insecure. And 
I know that probably what I'm supposed to say is like, you know, once I found the poetry, I was I was just in it all the way and there was no turning back. But the truth is that like I really I was fickle about it for a long time. And it got to a point, in fact, where at the end of my college career, I'd spent all this time writing, you know, flowery words about Jasmine T while my friends were out, you know, pursuing internships at JP Morgan, Facebook and things like that. And I felt like, okay, once again, I'm in this situation where I feel like I've been avoiding some sort of um, some sort of challenge that probably would have been good to serve myself by by pursuing. And so there was a point at which I said, "Okay, done too much of the poetry stuff. Let's set it aside and try to pay our corporate dues." And so that led to me taking up the role at Google. But ironically, at Google, the thing that I feel like was most important to me, which was the poetry, ended up finding its way back in. And after having the opportunity to experience what life was like on the inside of a company and compare that to this other thing that I had a lot of love for doing years prior, it was almost like that was the the proof or the evidence that, okay, you now can feel assured that this thing that was calling to you before was the thing that you, you wanted to be doing, regardless of whether it was similar to what other folks were doing or not. So, so in some respects, the the universe gave you a bit of a sign. There was a signpost that said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is the right path." I I want to ask you specifically about Google because I do understand the juxtaposition between sort of how you're framing up this creative path and the corporate world. All of that said, you know, you are an innovation guy, and you were at Google, which many people consider to be an innovation mecca of sorts. Was there a form of innovation there that felt very different from how you were conceiving innovation? Was it some way that bringing your own rubrics of poetry into it just didn't feel organic? Why did you leave? Yeah, there are a couple of things that makes me think of. The first is that I think if people think of Google's innovation, they tend to think of the products that Google is putting out, which makes a lot of sense. But for me, my experience with what I think of as innovation very much starts as a kind of like personal reflection sort of thing. When we take the opportunity to turn in words, introspect, to ask ourselves what could be different in the lives that we're leading, that's when the habits start to arise that lead to not just incredible business-related changes, but also personal and relationship changes. And, you know, I got to see a lot of the the business-related side of that being at Google. But what I was really interested in doing was trying to challenge people on this more personal innovation side of, of, the, of the coin. And so looking for opportunities to work with people as a speaker and as a poet was something that called to me within, you know, two to three years of, of being at Google and recognizing there was just other way to challenge folks. But, you know, I think they're closely related. So the hope is that also, uh, you know, in, in having these personal reflections occur, people find their way to the business-related challenge as well. That's very, very cool. And that led to, ultimately, the birth of your, your framework and methodology, The Poet's Keys, which we would love for you to walk us through. And if you can share any practical examples of how they've come to life through you know, work that you've led or workshops, that would be tremendous. Yeah, 100%. So The Poet's Keys are really, they're, they're five behavioral tools that poets use, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to unlock growth in their own crafts. And they're tools that leaders can use as well. 
The five are, first one is curiosity. And this is the idea that to create something new, a poet or professional has to first sort of stray from their own habits and routines to notice what in their environment can be reinvented. And so in this sort of tool, the goal is to kind of get folks asking the sorts of questions that they might not if they're deeply steeped in routine. And so, you know, one of the kind of silly but but effective things that I often do with clients is we get folks imagining that they're either an astronaut or an alien on a new planet, and they've just encountered someone who is, you know, if they're the astronaut, they've encountered the alien who happens to be the, the supreme leader who knows it, you know, like the, like the back of their hand. And so their goal is to learn as much as they possibly can about this new planet by asking as many questions as they can surmise about it. And of course, people... You know, they're like, okay, where do I start? This is, you know, we're making up some planet here. I'm, I'm with this alien dude who doesn't, you know, I don't know anything about. But the idea is that we want to put ourselves into as many situations as possible uh, where we're going to be inclined to ask ourselves and the world around us the sorts of questions that down the line can lead to, to new ideas. And so uh, it's that and it's also leaving white space in our routines to be able to, to, um, to do this sort of exploration on a regular basis. So that's curiosity. Figurative thinking is the second tool, which is the idea that um, imaginative metaphors and innovations, they both result from the poet or the professional's ability to prove ideas that seem impossible in the literal sense can be possible when we approach them figuratively or creatively is a better way to put that. So what we like to do here is getting folks to think as absurdly as they possibly can about a challenge they're facing. And then challenge the, those ideas to be thought of in a sense that identifies the spirit of the solution as opposed to what the biggest, most absurd solution looks like. And come up with a smaller way to approach this challenge that, in a way that's sort of relevant to how, how a metaphor would end up coming to shape. Imperfectionism is the third tool, which is the idea that poets and innovators both fall in love with constant experimentation. And to do this, they not only welcome but pursue opportunities to, to make mistakes. And so my favorite thing to do here to sort of um, embrace imperfectionism is to implement constraints on a challenge or on a piece of, uh, or an opportunity that we're trying to pursue and use that constraint to make it easier to, to make decisions and gain traction on a particular challenge or idea that we have. Fourth key is musicality. This is the idea that Poets use things like rhythm, repetition, rhyme uh, to make obscure language more approachable to the audience, and that professionals can practice a similar sort of empathy or empower an audience that's being led through uh, an unfamiliar sort of change. And so for this sort of work, we're trying to get folks to put themselves in the shoes of a team member or uh, a friend or a leader who's going through change that most likely the, the person who is going through this exploration is leading them through and try to identify what that person both would be feeling uh, amidst that change as well as what their needs might be as a result of, of having this feeling and responds on that basis as opposed to, you know, simply the what our goal is basis. And so very empathy related. And then the last key is what I refer to as performance, which is this idea that to evolve professional relationships we have to develop an awareness of sort of what poems, uncomfortable conversations, uh, difficult realities 
we're avoiding and find ways to approach these vulnerably. And so this is a personal and, and very introspective sort of key or tool. But um, here we're, we're often trying to get folks to identify a part of themselves, whether it's you know a passion, a flaw, a fear, that they don't introduce into their professional relationships often and try to begin to imagine what it would look like to, in a small but honest way, begin to allow them into the conversations that they're having or allow them into relationships that are poor. Yeah, bring, bringing more of yourself to this conversation. And all of it, though, you, I mean, you covered the gamut, everything from your mindset to your beliefs, to your behaviors, to your authenticity, to your vulnerability is all woven throughout the keys, which is a, a fantastic way to invite all of those different pieces to the conversation. Yeah, it's just cool to be working in an area that I think does kind of span the practical, but also the emotional and the, the reflective. And so, um, yeah, finding a way that folks can engage with all three of those realms at once is, is definitely a goal of, of the framework. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's something really powerful here about um, technology is so, you know, machine. It's so system. It's so code. It's so binary. And then you're introducing this completely different layer of humanity to the idea of innovation and innovation always partners with technology. So that's very cool. I want to take your concept of identity and ask a very specific question. So identity happens at the individual level and you work with the individual level. What's interesting about mindset and identity and beliefs, global beliefs, is they take shape at the team and the organizational level too. So like, let's play out an example. A person goes, well, I'm, I'm not innovative. I mean, I can do a lot of things and I'm great at it, but uh, I'm not an innovator. Well, you can also have that kind of a thought at the team level. Like, hey, we're great at what we do, but we don't innovate. Like, and then you can have that at an organizational level. And um, having worked in innovation inside of large organizations, strategy and innovation and uh, organizational transformation, as well as outside in consulting, is one of the things we ran into often is leaders, even senior executives who go, hey, we're not. Google, we, we're not, we're not Elon Musk. Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> so there's this really interesting sort of stopper that happens before the show even gets started. How do you work with the, those kind of beliefs when people just don't think that they can? Yeah, I, I super, super relate to this. And for me, honestly, it's, it's similar to what you kind of alluded to a second ago, which is the idea that people not organizations as amorphous entity are innovative and that innovation is as much a process as it is an outcome. It's, it's a habit, right? I think, you know, we brought up Google earlier. People do see these big flashy product launches and assume that like that's what it means to be innovative. But the goal really is to get folks to see how a simple habit repeated over time can lead to newness and that sort of innovation is as much a manifestation of innovation as the Chad GBTs of the world. And it's also ironic because I feel like, you know, we talked a little bit about Google being a big corporation. It's semi-bureaucratic in a lot of ways. And people look up to Google as a, a company that is, is doing some of the most innovative stuff out there. But in many ways, its success led to a lot of the, the barriers that, that prevent it from continuing to do the kinds of innovation that are easier when we are, you know, a single person or, you know, a small group of people. And so looking for ways to view our agility 
as, as a resource as opposed to our lack of hugeness, I think uh, is another sort of misconception to break down or um, way to try to get folks to recognize that they don't have to be, you know, an Elon Musk to do something that is different or something that is new. Yeah. So innovation that I love, I've never heard that and I love it. So quote, <laughs> Tucker gets that 2023. We make things practical here at TDW. And for our audience, we want them to walk away with something really practical. What I'm hearing you say, Tucker, is anyone can innovate, right? And you don't have to think about it at a Google, Elon Musk level, chat GPT level. You can innovate just in and of yourself every day. Is that fair? A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's not just, you know, creating the new Cybertruck. It could be getting yourself to floss more often, you know, like that's for a lot of people, for me, that's innovative like, in a real way. It's definitely going to save you a lot of money on your dental. Exactly. <laughs> I, I also love the point that when you're talking about a larger, larger organization like Google and basically saying, look, it's, it's tough at times for, for a battleship to surf the waves, right? Like mm. some of these companies are really big and, they don't have the ability to be to, to make decisions or move as nimbly, even if they have innovation in their in their DNA, because there's so much scale behind them that it's harder. And that the individual person as such has more flexibility. Smaller teams and smaller companies sometimes have more flexibility or purchase in the innovation space than they than they may be able to, to really understand or realize or appreciate. Yeah. It's you know, turning these sorts of things that we see as deficits into into benefits, which I think they often are. And we just, our misconceptions kind of prevent us from being alive to that. I, I have one quick build on that, which is, I think, very much related, Nate, to your question. And this is, you know, technology and poetry are about as different as you can get, right? And you're dealing with sometimes some very traditional organizations that are thinking about efficiency and the quick fix and not opening to curiosity and creativity. So similar to the question around the challenge that, that Nate posed, you know, how do you break the ice when you walk into an executive that says, poet's keys uh, for innovation? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I've got another meeting. Who brought this guy? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm sure that never happens. <laughs> oh man, no, it's you, you. There definitely are folks who are who are a little confused, which is totally understandable. But what my goal is when I enter a room like that is really just to demonstrate to to an audience like that that even if they've never written a sonnet in their lives, that their challenges are likely not all that different from the challenges of both faces. So I tell them about things like writer's block and how it comes from the anxiety of not knowing where their pen is going to end up. And so I ask group executives, leaders, how many of them have a role that challenges them to wrestle with uncertainty, which is like everyone deals with if they're, if they're strategic. Um, I tell them about things like imagery, you know, about how poets don't write about a sunset in clouds. They write about a bruised sky and the, cotton balls that sprinkle the air or whatever. And they do this because poetry is how we pry from our minds, but only exists in the imagination and make it so real that our audience can't help but see it too. And so I ask this group of leaders, how many of them have a role that ever challenges them to bring an idea to life totally from scratch? And, and sometimes an idea that somebody else might not have been able to see until you know, we showed them. And 
people again raise their hands. And then I'll, I'll tell them about this poem, one of my favorite poems called Ode to the 99 Cent Store, in which the poet challenges this belief that bargain and bad quality belong in the same sentence. I think he calls the 99 cent store God's garage sale. And by the end of this poem, you've got like so much more love for your local Dollar Tree or Dollar General that you probably overlook. And so I ask this final question of how many folks among this group of execs, leaders, et cetera, have a role that ever challenges them to question their assumptions or the assumptions of other people and challenge traditions of thinking. And, you know, if folks aren't doing that currently in their job, they certainly want to. And so by now, everyone's raised their hand at least once. And so, you know, the kind of the thing that I often share is that like the only real difference between you and a poet in, in this situation is probably how much debt you've accumulated since high school. And so I think being able to see that the challenges <laughs> are often the same, but are just applied to a different, a different medium um, helps folks see that, okay, you know what, maybe there is something that poets are doing on a daily basis that might be helpful because without, you know, taking on these challenges, poetry doesn't exist. I have an ability to kind of sink into my comfort zone. So what can I learn from this, this medium that's, that's very different, but is pushing towards a similar goal? I, I love the questions that you ask and the way that you insert yourself into those conversations because I do think they can disarm traditional thinking in the right way to create, you know, some curiosity going back to the keys and some open-mindedness. It's also a little bit of dis- disassociation, right? You, you can get out of the heaviness of your day-to-day and get into looking at the same challenge through the lens of something completely different, that's got to feel a lot more safe than, hey, I've got the SEC breathing down my back because we've got a risk exposure that has a $20 million price tag on it. It's probably nice just to get out of that and, and be in a completely different headspace. 100%. Tucker, let me ask you about this. So the concept of innovation, I think people often misunderstand. It can only take you so far of this idea and then you, you said, it's a habit, it's a way of being, it's uh, an action, it's a verb, right? This thing that you're doing. And I think a lot of people don't know that innovation needs a framework to really come to life, right? There has to be a way to talk about ideas, net new or problems you're trying to solve in the organization. There has to be a way to test new technologies and let people touch it and feel it and see what might be possible in their department or uh, run an experiment. Maybe just your team or maybe you partner with another team to run an experiment. Or, or maybe you just share the learning. Hey, we went out and tried X. Here's what we learned. Would that be valuable to you? So as you work with people in the Poets Keys, um, how do you talk to them about, hey, this is a framework. You got to do this stuff all the time to make it really come to life. Yeah, honestly, the most valuable thing that I found is to make it as simple as possible, just challenging folks to create the space to question and to experiment. And sometimes that's literally as simple as saying, this hour of your week, every week, is protected for unstructured time, for time to question, to brainstorm, to, to think through the things that, that are not part of your routine that you might not be thinking about when you are steeped in the, the regulatory challenges, et cetera. I think that there's this need to recognize that when we create time like this, it, it doesn't mean that 
the first hour on the first week, we're going to walk out with like a billion dollar idea, but that this is like a sort of long-term investment. Um, and that by again, building the habit and making that a structured commitment that over time we can sort of close this gap between what we would be able to accomplish where we only need to stick to our routines and what we can accomplish if we're you know, setting a little bit of time aside every week to question what if and what could be beyond the scope of what we um, hold ourselves to doing on a regular week. Love that. I, I got to ask you this question, Tucker. <laughs> it, it, you know this has come with chat GPT, so I'm just going to ask it, right? AI is hit a tipping point. Um, it's been in Alexa. It's been in our phones, you know, Siri, okay, Google, whatever. We've been using it in a lot of ways where people don't even know because it's extracted from our view. But ChatGPT is front page and people can interact with this in a really different way. And it's fluid and it's super fast. I mean, you can say, write me a children's book and it will write you a children's book. You can say, show me how to build a strategy for SEO for a podcast. And in seconds, it's right there. And so naturally, it brings me to this idea of poetry of if it can write copy and it can write books and social posts and movie scripts and whatever music, how does that intersect with poetry? And does that sort of add value or does that all start to get weird and ethical and in the, the Maya Angelou and the Shel Silverstein and the roomies start to become code? What do you think about all that? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. My opinion might not be super popular, but I think it's really cool, that prospect, for two reasons. The first reason is that I generally think that more poetry is good for the world. If there are more people or things that can contribute words to our cultural understanding that are either so lucid or musical or evocative that they stick with a person and do work on their perspective over the course of many years and, and maybe leave them a little bit better off 10 years down the line, I'm down for that whether it's me writing them or Beep Boop Smarter Child or whoever else it is, right? <laughs> I'm down for that. So that's the first reason that I'm, I'm super into it. But the second thing that I think it presents the, the worthwhile challenge of is that I think for both poets and just artists slash creatives in general, people who are in innovation strategy, people who are content marketers, it presents this new challenge where we'll have to reconnect with what makes our work indispensably us, which I think is our unique perspective, our unique voice, not best practices, not what everybody else is doing. I think a challenge becomes not how do I outright a conversational AI bot, but how do I spend so much time with my craft, whatever that craft is, that my voice is truly my own. And the questions that I'm asking and the the sort of paths that those questions lead me down are a journey that only I am going on. And so I think the challenge is one that will sort of force all of us to up-level our thinking and our intuition as creatives, whether we're, we're poets, innovators, et cetera. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what it'll, what it'll do for us. I love that last point, and I completely agree. I think it is going to push people to really embrace and uncover their own uniqueness in a much more powerful way. because. When you put in prompts to ChatGPT, you know, the things that you get out are fairly consistent in, in terms of the tone and the writing and the structure. And it's very good, but it doesn't have a lot of flavor. 
you can ask it to write something in the tone of, of you know, a certain author or thought leader or whatever. And, and it's basically biting their style, but it's not its own style. Mm-hmm. Right. So I love that point. And I love the, the notion that more poetry is just better. hundred percent. I want to go back to the, the keys for a minute for us, embracing curiosity and imperfection are core tenets and values for the future of work. And these are two of your keys. And I love everything that you shared about how they come to life for you and what they are. I have a two-part question. The first is, can we talk about why it feels like curiosity is less valued than certainty these days? I think about this a fair bit. And my perspective here is that, you know, obviously today versus any time in the past, which seems to be a a pattern that, that this this sort of trend intensifies, you know, things are moving super quick. People are facing really fierce competition. Uh, our industries are super complex and that's only getting more and more, more and more so the case. Um, and in that context, I think people tend to cling to what we know and we feel less comfortable taking risks, which is, I think is understandable, right? When things are really crazy out there, it's like, what can I do in here that feels familiar? So I I think it's a super human and understandable response to that, that landscape. The need for safety. The need exactly. For safety. Yeah. yeah. But the problem with that is that investing in curiosity is a long-term strategy. We don't, we're not going to figure out our amazing new idea after a single day of exploring. But if we never bake in that time to explore, after a year, we might achieve you know, 90% of, of what we're capable of, which doesn't sound that bad after a single year. But if we continue to sort of build that, that curiosity deficit over the course of many years, year after year, we end up 10 years down the line looking like Kodak or Xerox or, or Blockbuster. And so I think it's understandable that people in times of uncertainty cling to what they know. But I think there's value in shifting the perspective that, look, I'm not investing in curiosity in the hopes that I will be able to solve all these challenges that I'm facing today, it's it's the knowledge that 10 years down the line, I'll be better equipped to lead my industry as, as a leader, as opposed to relying on these sort of models of thinking that are already bound for obsolescence. Love that. The second piece of that is is imperfection. And this is something we're thinking about all the time, is that in the age of technology, and especially in the age of AI everywhere, as we're calling it, we have become so accustomed to technology delivering very predictable and consistent outcomes and making our lives so much easier and everything is at the click of a button and every engineer is trying to figure out how to get us to fewer clicks of the button to execute whatever it is that we're looking for to achieve with our technology. And it creates this expectation of perfectionism. Technology does it perfectly every time why shouldn't we? And that's really troublesome because that is not the nature of humanity. We are, we are imperfectly perfect. And this idea of embracing imperfection, embracing a, a shitty first draft, as Brene Brown likes to say, and as Nate likes to quote from time to time, <laughs> um, I love that one. is critical for us, right? Because that's what allows us to get better. And that's what is core to our humanness. So how do we make more space in this moment authentic imperfection. Yeah, this is super important. I agree. And 
to my mind, we often tend to think that our creativity is this sort of lightning bolt that strikes us from the sky and that if we don't experience that, our idea is not going to be perfect enough to be willing for us to be willing to pursue it. But that's not how creativity tends to happen. And so to embrace imperfectionism, I like to impose constraints. And these can be either constraints on our time or constraints on our resources. And I'll give you an example. There's this, this poet named Charles Jensen who created this poem that is in the style that we refer to as erasure poetry, where the poet doesn't actually write any words of their own. They restrict themselves to taking an existing text and creating something new by simply removing a couple of lines from, from that text. And so he created this poem, Charles Jensen, by taking the text of the Miranda rights. Um, I'm not sure if you have audience members who aren't in the States, but you know, this is what's read to you when you're arrested. And simply removing a couple of words from each instance of the Miranda rights that he, he copied down. And so I don't know the whole poem, but there are lines in it that say things like, you have the right to remain. You have silent will. Uh, anything you say mm. can be right. Anything you say will be provided to you. You cannot wow. be you. Things like this. And so what I think is really cool about this is that it, it, it gives us this understanding that we can create really cool new things without having to have these perfect or grand ideas of, of how to make traction on a new idea. And so I think the, the challenge here for folks is to give yourself some restriction on the challenge you're trying to make, make traction on. Take a part of your work that is really big for you right now, whether it's a presentation you have to give or a process you rely on or even your core product or service. Imagine removing a core part, core, quote unquote, of that thing and seeing where that act of subtraction forces you to reimagine what the thing could become. So I think by looking for ways to you know, make the process of deciding less, uh, less arduous and make it feel a little bit less like it's, it's reflective of us because we give ourselves the constraints, it makes it a lot easier for us to, you know, be comfortable taking risks and knowing that we might not get it right, but we will get something new. That um, also makes me think of the creativity doesn't have to be net new. Like you said, you can take something and alter it, you know, or this term that's pretty modern, this idea of a mashup, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, throw them in a pot, spin it around, you know, like I think a lot of things we do today is some form of a mashup of, of other things. And it turns into really cool, unique ideas. Tucker, would you be willing to share a poem with us and just, you know, give our audience your art? No. Yeah, of course. I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of here. See you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd absolutely love to. Um, Yeah, I know that given the themes of of what y'all are doing here uh, with the Disruptive Workforce, there's a poem that I thought might be of interest uh, that kind of touches on some stuff that I think is, is, is probably somewhat relevant. So uh, this poem is called Facts About Myself. So some facts about myself. I'm 28 years old. I'm right-handed. I hate my middle name. I don't eat goat's cheese. I'm a terrible driver. And for as long as I can remember, I've always had this insatiable hunger for good ramen and bad puns. I believe there are only two kinds of people in the world. 
those who admit they've ever peed in the shower, and liars. I'm the son of a man who never misses a home-cooked meal or skips his dishwashing duties. Uh, The son of a woman who told me that my name is an earthquake in waiting, she said, hold it in your mouth like the most dangerous secret this world has yet to know. I'm only five foot eight on a really good day. But being built like a short story is a lesson in finding other ways to be the tallest tail in the room. I don't know what it means to be a man, and for a while, I thought the weight room could tell me. But I've heard stories of men with shotgun barrels for arms who use their bodies as weapons. I've seen them shoot their mouths off and leave bullet holes in women's spirits. And my sisters say that they raised me to be a good guy, but I have a set of knuckles swollen with the memory of teeth and blood, and I'm still learning to unlearn my own violence. Reminded every day that a righteous heart inside a male body is just a gun with the safety on. And I know boys who are still searching for their manhood inside bottles, bank accounts, between nameless hips. Boys that remote control their partners because they're not strong enough to let things go. I know people carry an obsession to property in our blood. And that when I was a kid, I used to shoplift things I didn't need or want just to feel like there was something in this world that I could own. I know the most beautiful thing about love is that I cannot be owned. You know, some days I'm still a 13-year-old whose stomach origami folds on itself every time Laura Stevenson walks past his lunch table. And I don't watch much TV these days, but I'm still a Nickelodeon kid at heart. So if you ask me who loves orange soda, I'm going to tell you. I've broken way more promises than bones in my life, and I'm still not sure which has been more painful to heal. I have a heart the same size as a fist, and I didn't find self-love until I gave myself a beating. But I was the tree that fell in a forest when no one else was looking and dared to make a sound. I'm the meal that this thing called depression has spent decades trying to devour from the inside out. I am also living proof that that fool bit off more than he could chew. I believe there is nothing more autobiographical than a scar. So every time I see the remains of the barcodes I've carved into my skin, I read the story of a battle I win every day. I used to wake up breathless with anxiety that felt deadly. But now I'm so sick, I've got depression scared to catch me. I am both Brit and boy, which means that I'm the knife that threatens to slit the neck of silence and make everything bleed song. I am song. I know nothing can die that can't be resurrected by music and that the dance floor is the safest place to be during the apocalypse. I know all of this, but I'm still figuring out how to hold on to this helium balloon called happiness. I've got charisma down to a science, but most days I still have less confidence than English weather. But I'm learning every day what it means to be human without yet being whole. Every night the sky opens its mouth and swallows the sun in a single gulp just to make room for the moon. What a wonderful way to live life. Be so full of so much light, but always hungry for more. Wow. Wow. Deeply human poetry is innovation. Just everything about what you said in the context of the world that we're living in and how authentic you were about the duality and the juxtaposition of everything that goes on in your life and how you're striving to find your best self in there. Thank you for sharing that beautiful poem with us. Appreciate y'all for listening. And so much in there about the juxtapositions of, of manhood and boyhood and the stories we, we as men carry of what makes us a man. Tucker, we want to take you through a speed round. This is a very short, you know, 10 to 30 seconds. You figure out what you want to say. Just go with it. Go with your gut. Boom. Intuition. Let's do it. Yeah, Alex is going to kick us off. Okay. What poem grabbed your soul and shook you to your core? The Whale by Terrence Hayes. I have to read it now. <laughs> Immediately going to read that. Immediately, <laughs> okay. yeah. Okay. 
Uh, what are a couple of companies that you think are doing innovation well and really empowering their people, unlocking innovation in their organization? I'm going to give you a, an unusual answer. There are two guys named John and Matt who are urban designers who are empowering the cities that they live in to be innovative. Um, so John, Bela, and Matt Passamer. I'm going to throw their names out there. Fantastic. Love it. Your poet's key figurative thinking demands suspending disbelief to pursue what might seem impossible. Is there a grand or seemingly impossible aspiration that you are chasing today? I would like to play uh, a death metal tribute band in a dive bar with stunning accuracy on the guitar in the next <laughs> 10 years of my life. That was impossible. Awesome. I wanted to have it. Awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> I love that. Okay, risk-taking is fundamental to reinvention through disruption. What is one big risk that you are taking in 2023? Continuing to not work at Google in order to try to get on stages <laughs> and share with folks why it is worth listening and thinking like a poet in order to find meaning and higher impact in the work that they're doing. Purpose. You, we are kindred spirits. Alex and I could not have said that answer differently than what you just said. Sergey wow. and Larry, keep your eyes on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Last wow. one. There are so many negative headlines that are blasting us every day. Why are you, Tucker, optimistic about innovation in the future? Because I think that ultimately everybody wants to step outside of the box. Everybody wants to be able to be the best that they can be. You just don't always have the tools or the energy to, to do that. And so I think with the right inspiration or the right tools, a lot more can happen than what we might think of ourselves as being capable of when we're not given that provocation. Amazing. Yes, Tucker, thank you for bringing poetry to innovation. I think if you lined up 100 people and said, how would you make innovation better? Maybe one person would say something as creative as poetry. So thank you for bringing humanity to the arts, the new perspective and paradigm shift of what is possible when we step out of this old pattern of innovation and enter a completely new paradigm to explore this for self, for team, and for the whole organization. Anyone can innovate. That is the practical thing, the gift that you've given to our audience today. This is possible for you. We can all do this to achieve our potential and move our organizations forward. Tucker, thank you. Super appreciate that, man. It's been such an honor to shine a flashlight on your work today. It really has been. And sky's the limit for, for the work you're doing. It's really exciting. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can our audience find you? Yeah, two best places are my website, TuckerBryantSpeaks.com. Or on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Tucker Bryant. And I'd love to chat. And Brian is, Brian is spelled B-R-Y-A-N-T, folks. Yes. Thank you for that. I, I always forget that piece. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see what you're going to do next. Appreciate you. And thank you both for your curiosity and your figurative thinking as you stepped into the realm of asking yourselves how poetry can be relevant to this space of innovation and, and leadership change. 
Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.